The most Nordic music that you will ever hear, in my opinion, is not Vadruna or Heilung or even Hedningerna. The most Nordic music ever created is this. It's essentially jazz. It's an Afro-American tradition which is yielded here by Jan Johansson, playing an originally Spanish tune, La Folia, which spread through Europe in the 16th and 17th century and became a cornerstone in, uh, in Swedish folk music particularly. That is cultural exchange, the topic of this video and one of the most important aspects of any human culture. Uh, perhaps that source that all culture springs from. However, talking about cultural exchange actually implies the difficult question of cultural appropriation. Isn't that beautiful? <laughs> uh, Jan Johansson is uh, sometimes called the wizard, as it would seem obviously improbable that any ordinary human being would be able to infuse the use of one single instrument with such light and power, yet such deep sadness and longing as Johansson there with his piano. Um, he was taught or matured as a musician under the direct tutelage of some of the greatest jazz men of his age in the mid-20th century, particularly Oscar Pettiford, who incredibly lived in Copenhagen at the time, uh, and Johansson went here and became a, an apprentice, actually, of Pettiford, who was the, the driving force behind Stan Getz, another great jazz name of that period. And this is how culture works, and how it's supposed to work, through cultural exchange. And if you look thoroughly enough, it's probably the case of pretty much any piece of culture that you can imagine. But Nordic culture is in fact a very good example. Um, because the pre-Christian Nordics even had a protocol, it seems, for actively producing cultural exchange with the Sami, the Finfara. And I'll get back to that. But basically, all culture emerges in and lives from cultural exchange. And that's why it's extremely important to not allow identitarian ideologies aimed at producing social consent to make cultural exchange illegitimate, which they regularly do in shifting forms. So um, uh, let's start out with some uh, indigenous thinking on the matter. So. Here the Aboriginal Australian author Tyson Junkerporter, whose understanding of indigenous knowledge, what in a Europe-descendant context could be called traditional knowledge, in my view is some of the best stuff you can find today. Tyson's articulation of traditional knowledge works from a typical typical indigenous relational model of how human culture is naturally structured. He launches a power criticism that deconstructs models to control populations in order to serve the interests of a few powerful individuals. One tool to do this is the identitarian model, an ideology that conceptualizes human culture a bit, li a bit like this. You know, finite boxes 
of culture that are sharply distinct from each other and which somehow are different in essence. And, uh, uh, and that means that, that, that mixing implies a kind of contamination of this essence, what uh, in the US the Ku Klux Klan would use to, use to call mongrelizing. Uh, the idea that culture becomes a hodgepodge rather than this pure, serene unambiguity. <clears throat> and this is the reason that minorities become a problem in nationalist states. It is the ideological foundation for attacking, exterminating, abducting into assimilation programs, and so on. It's why racist contexts make laws against intermarrying. Uh, and this is all motivated by... Uh, lot of it motivated by identitarianism. This kind of thinking about uh, humanity, <coughs> which today, sadly, is no longer only found on the right wing, but has sort of been hacked also into the political left in the form of woke identitarianism, which I addressed in another video. Uh, Tyson describes how the identitarian consent ideologies uh, has played a role in the domination of Aboriginal Australians. Uh, people who used to have multiple languages and multiple assimilations and be interconnected with each other over huge areas are being subjected to compliance with the requirements of uh, an ideology of homogeneity, authenticity, cultural ambiguity and uninterrupted cultural tradition. Uh, and you can uh, probably look at pretty much any place in the world and you will find not the same, but comparable situations, you'll find complex webs of connectedness between people, which are then at some point starting to be replaced by or compromised by this identitarian box thinking. Uh, in Scandinavia, uh, for instance, there would certainly have been complex gradations and continuums of related and continuously relating groups. And these are then... Um, being reduced to, you could say, uh, more unambiguous categories such as Danes, Swedes and Norwegians. Categories which don't just occlude groups with distinct languages such as the Sami, Mayan, Kven, Roma, Frisian, Delkalian and others, but also more localized identities that might be a little bit less uh, marked by linguistic difference such as the Scanians or the Gotlandians and, and so on. Now, the cultural wealth, the cultural richness and variation of these areas are very literally being reduced by these ideologies of a single, uh, singular monoculture. This is a great paradox of nationalism, is that uh, it seems to valorize culture while in effect actually attacking even the culture of those lands that the um, nationalisms uh, strive to sort of unify. So Tyson suggests recovering traditional ways of knowing and self-image through principles or protocols, he calls it, of practicing traditional knowledge that he sees um, reflected in um, Aboriginal Australian culture. And these protocols are diversify, connect, interact and adapt. He suggests that, uh, that you must seek out and interact with agents that are very different from you. <laughs> Connectedness, he says, balances the excesses of individualism in the diversity principle. And importantly, you must be able to let your interaction with other transform you. And I recommend that you, you uh, check uh, his thinking out on this point yourself in the book Sand Talk. Now, 
uh, North Europeans seem to have had, well, if not protocols, then at least a culture of actively promoting cultural exchange as a tool for ongoing cultural uh, transformation. Pre-Christian heathens, they practiced traditional knowledge processes as transformational and safeguarded them from ossifying and becoming static through a practice of cultural exchange with the Sami, uh, sometimes called finfara or finfaring, visiting the Sami for animist knowledge exchange. This uh, Sami drumhammer here uh, actually almost shows this reality of this exchange by juxtaposing and mixing Norwegian and Sami graphic style. It's an 11th century piece of um, uh, actually Sami Nuaidi paraphernalia, a tool for the practice of Sami shamanism or, or Nuaidi water, Nuaidi craft. And it gives us a little glimpse into the uh, self-image of the time before uh, very strong um, coherent ideologies such as identitarianism were brought into place. This is from the same period where Norwegian kings took good care to emphasize their Sami ancestry lines. A Sami Nwaidi would in this period decorate such a hammer by juxtaposing Sami and Norwegian graphic styles. The right side of the hammer is decorated with Viking Ringrike ornamentation um, and the other side with uh, Sami ornaments. I find this to be an extremely beautiful and potent image of cultural coexistence and exchange. This kind of synergetic exchange is a necessary condition, I think, for traditional knowledge processes to live, to exist. This is a kind of knowledge that is at its core transformational. And finfaring was one way uh, in which pre-Christian Scandinavians probably made sure to maintain it as transformational, to make sure that it did not ossify and become static. Visiting the Sami for animist knowledge exchange. Um, and the idea that some people have of traditional culture as static and locked, kind of almost outside time, in these systemic, serene state of functionalist purity is not just incorrect. I mean, I would say that this idea is in itself an identitarian tool of undermining the central tenet in traditional culture, which is that it is the opposite of static and encased. It's relational and transformational, right? However, when Christianity came to Norway, like in other Scandinavian areas, this religion was applied in the state-building project by elites, royal elites. Now, the state-building often, often requires producing specific forms of compliance, perhaps comparable to what Noam Chomsky uh, in a much later period called manufacturing consent, right? So it became important to start moving populations into compliance by implementing something that looks a little bit more like this model here. Though at this point it wasn't nationalism or identitarianism yet, that's, that's a much, much later invention. But early elites must have somehow sensed that the dynamic and transformational nature of traditional knowledge was potentially a problem for the state-building project. It's more difficult to manufacture consent if people's uh, culture is a transformational organic thing that moves with the land and, well, you basically don't know if your peasantry will suddenly follow changing weather patterns and, and, and move towards 
pastoralism because their traditional culture is kept in transformational ongoing contact with neighboring groups like the Sami. Uh, and by the way, in the long trajectory of human history, uh, this is something that you regularly see. Uh, uh, humans don't evolve on a, 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 a singular trajectory of greater and greater and greater complexity. In fact, we move between different modes and we consider our situation and make informed choices. So, uh, for instance, uh, even in the deep, deep past, like prehistory, sometimes see that people will say, well, we drop the idea of states and cities and all that, and then we just move into perhaps more mobile, landscape, reciprocal um, modes of creating community. And we are probably about to do that again in, in the world today. And that might be part of the reason that identitarianisms are becoming so virulent in our age, you know, because this, this potentially compromises uh, state, con uh, state construction projects. So, in medieval Norway, Christian state builders banned an oppressed cultural exchange, the Finnfara. And perhaps for the first time in Northern U European history, perhaps, you know, cultural exchange started to be oppressed and vilified, even though this was in a context that very, very far removed from today's white supremacists and woke identitarians and all that, who have similar problems with, with uh, cultural exchange. So later, this ideology uh, was implemented even further by rulers who tried to eradicate not only the Nordic people con contact with the Sami, but the Sami animist reality altogether. So in a further extension of uh, these consent manufacturing ideologies, the Sami Nwaidid were in fact persecuted and murdered on accusations of witchcraft. Cool. But cultural exchange is a difficult thing to curb because humans just somehow have this deep realization that real knowledge comes from other, not from self. A bit like in the Old Norse where the word for stupid is actually heimskot, home-ish as a person who is who's not relating with other, right? So throughout history, exchanges with other is a constant factor. Though, of course, the most dynamic cultural exchange interfaces have always been rejected and criticized by the norms dictated by elites. Uh, one really good, interesting example of this in Europe is the Kabbalah. And Kabbalah is a form of Jewish mysticism that came into being around a millennia ago as Kabbalah. Uh, and non-Jewish -Jewish Europeans started exchanging with the Kabbalah pretty much from the first moment it was introduced. Non-Jewish Europeans have literally been inspired by the Kabbalah since the first, very first moment when, when, uh, when it was there, which was about the time when the Eddas was written down. So when you see people talking about how non-Jews are appropriating the Kabbalah, you know, that makes about as much sense is accusing Christians for appropriating the Old Testament. There was literally not a time in history where this particular branch of Jewish mysticism was not in very lively exchange with non-Jewish ways of thinking. The important Kabbalah practitioner Abraham Abu Lafia, he went up to the Pope in Rome and tried to convert him to Kabbalah. You know, you find Kabbalah in like medieval runic inscriptions, you know. You, so this is a very old example of those different ideologies of consent and Suppliers that are used to produce cultural homogeneity by preventing knowledge exchange. Uh, in this case, with a primary other, you could say, in the European space, the Jews, it's not coincidence that anti-Semitism is one of the oldest aspects of European identitarianisms. The Jews have been an ever-present other, almost ever-present other, in, in Europe, European history through the last millennia. So exchange with Jewish thought has been a, a potential for transformation, for Finfara, you could say. 
And perhaps it's also uh, the reason that anti-Semitism is one of the first parts of identitarian right-wing understandings of culture to be hacked into the left-wing. Left-wingers have a very long-standing tradition of being anti-Semit and a tradition which is still alive today, sadly. But the fact that these kind of cultural appropriation accusations are regularly levied in really harmful ways, that does not mean that cultural exchange is always unproblematic. Can cultural exchange become the vehicle for oppression and power symmetry? Yes, it totally can. Power is rarely completely dissociated from human culture and its exchanges and developments and transformations. There can be power symmetry associated with almost any human phenomenon and that it's positive that, you know, so certainly cultural exchange can be a vehicle for that. And what is more, some kinds of culture is owned. You can't just do with it whatever you like because it belongs to someone. And this is common when it comes to religious culture, actually. Also, some culture can be damaged by being disseminated in the wrong way, you see? And this is why some indigenous people, for instance, they get the heebie-jeebies when some white dude, you know, is sitting in a teepee, you know, running some hippie self-realization course or something like that under the pretense of the whole thing being Native American. And, and when someone says like, dude, dude, he will say stuff like, when I woke up to the mountain, Creator didn't ask me if I was white. You know, when you listen to yourself, you dumb bourgeois, suburb, Caucasian, stereotype motherfucker. You know, and this is when we could start using the label cultural appropriation, which I really cannot be bothered to talk about <laughs> because it's so convoluted and conflict-ridden, but which unfortunately I feel I have to talk about because it is an extremely important concept and it's mega in misunderstood, I think, in the way that it's being overprojected in our age. I think it's being overprojected in ways that simultaneously make it toxic while undermining it. And uh, I'll try to gather the energy to get back to that in some coming video. <laughs> See you around.